please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. The portion of Scripture is slightly different than it is in your bulletin, as, in, as is the title. It's not unusual for me, but um, God has impressed upon me that we should focus on verses 12 through 14 of this passage, Philippians 3, 12 through 14, as my, and my sermon is called, The Upward Call of God. The Upward Call of God. I'm excited for this morning's message because it's the second sermon of a short two-sermon series on our church's mission and vision. And as a reminder, the scripture that I'm about to read, after I read the scripture, I do something every week called the prayer for illumination. And the prayer of illumination is when I pray that God would take the words that I have prepared to preach and by the power of his Holy Spirit, that Christ would speak to his church. So let's give attention then, not only to the reading of scripture, but to the prayer of illumination, which I will pray right before I begin to preach. This is God's holy and inerrant word, Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on, to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So far the reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as your word has been read, your servant now seeks to explain and proclaim the gospel from this portion of scripture, especially as it bears on our vision as a church. So please, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and intentions on each one of our hearts be acceptable now in your sight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In context, just before this portion of scripture that I've read for you, the Apostle Paul has told a short version of his testimony. Now, testimony simply means the story of how someone comes to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, and you believe in him, and you're a Christian, then you have a testimony. If you're not yet a believer, then your testimony is still developing and you're hearing the scripture preached this morning, may be part of the story that God uses to bring you to a point where you say, yes, I want to follow the Lord with my whole life. Well, Paul has given us in this chapter, earlier in this chapter, a short portion of his testimony, how he used to live before he discovered Jesus on the Damascus Road. The big change in his life hinged on the discovery that nothing else mattered for him except Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't have clothing or take attention to what he ate or the needs that he had in sleeping. He had other needs, but no other need, no other desire, no other value, no other commitment. Once he discovered Jesus, 
was nearly as important. He explains this using something that I want to call gospel math. What is gospel math? We'll look back a few verses to Philippians 3 and verse 7. Paul says in this text, But whatever gain I had, I'll put that in my left hand here, I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So in Paul's gospel math, the gain that he had before he followed Jesus, that's here, was now loss compared to Christ, and that's here. So in Paul's gospel math, and you can kind of do it with your hands like this, Jesus is on the one side, and everything else important is on the other side. And how does it measure out in your life? Well, for Paul, his gain was way more weighty on the scale. And Jesus was actually quite insignificant. He was pursuing followers of, of Christ to kill them. That's how insignificant Jesus was. But when he met Jesus, the gospel math kicked in. We'll call it new math, not to be compared with new math that they teach in schools. And Paul's new math was, wow, everything else that I thought was weighty in my life, that I thought was super important, my top priorities, my goals, aspirations, and ambitions, compared to knowing Christ, boom, Jesus is the most important. He has the most gravitas. He gets first place. But then in verse 12, which is our text, Paul says that he actually has quite a long way to go from his goal. So he's come to know Christ, but he hasn't attained that goal fully and finally yet. He says specifically, I have not yet obtained this. What hasn't he obtained? Well, in verses 10 and 11 of our text, which we're not going to go into this morning, essentially he's saying, the prize of the resurrection. I'm not yet perfect. You see, for the Christian, perfection is only attained or you only arrive at perfection, full maturity, when you experience the resurrection in the life which is to come. Until then, the preoccupation of all followers of Christ is the upward call of God. And that's my sermon this morning, the upward call of God. Here are three important truths about the upward call of God. First, in explaining the upward call of God, I want you to notice that in our passage, the Apostle Paul describes it in athletic terms. Now, if you're an athlete, a runner, or a competitor in some sport, you're going to like this part of the sermon. Paul compares the Christian life to an athletic contest, to something like a race. So the first truth, the first important truth you need to know about the upward call of God is that it has an athletic character. It has an athletic character. Look at verse 14 of our passage. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Now right there we have two athletic terms. Goal and prize. The ESV Study Bible, which actually I gave two copies of the ESV Study Bible. I gave one to John last week when he joined the church, and I gave one to Sahi as well. It's a great resource. 
And it explains that the word goal in our passage refers, quote, to the finish line in a race or the target in an archery competition. Now, isn't that cool? So Paul dips into the world of competitive sports in the first century, and he grabs this word, goal. And it sounds normal to our ears because we're familiar with Scripture or we're just maybe not paying attention. But it's a specific technical term for the finish line. It would be as if he said, I press on towards the finish line in the race of the Christian life. Or I aim very carefully again and again at the bullseye of the target. That's what he's saying. Well, this means at least two things. There is a definite and discernible end or finish line to the Christian life. It also means, since it's like a finish line, you don't get there automatically, and it isn't easy. That's right, the Christian life is something that's quite challenging. It presents serious demands, something equivalent to the demands on a runner's body or on an archer's hands and balance and coordination as he or she aligns to the target. You usually don't win a race or hit the bullseye on accident. I mean, maybe it would happen once, but most winners in races and in competitions are people who have invested serious time and effort in attaining that goal. Again, from the ESV Study Bible, Paul's life is purposeful, for he constantly aims at his heavenly goal. That's inspiring to me. The Apostle Paul lives a purposeful existence, and he's constantly aiming towards his heavenly goal. He's striving, he's straining, he's doing his best, and he's not doing it to lose. He's determined to cross the finish line, a victor and a champion. What does this mean for you for living the Christian life? I think it means at least four things from our text. First of all, in verse 12, the Christian life requires you to be diligent. Laziness is ruled out. It is a non-starter for a believer in the Lord. And that isn't a real inspiring message, is it? It requires work. And if you think that you can sort of bag salvation in your back pocket while you coast easily on the lazy boy headed for heaven, that is not this religion. That is not our faith. That is a mockery of the gospel, actually. It actually mocks and scandalizes the very cross itself. No, the Christian life requires urgency. Look at the text. It says, I press on in verse 12. Pressing on is an intensity that you would show if you were, in, if you were a hunter pursuing quarry in the woods, if you were chasing after it. Pressing on is the kind of thing that uh, a, a man who is in love with a lady does. When, when a guy's in love, it is amazing. He buttons his shirt. He tucks it in. He puts on a belt. He shines his shoes. He shows up on time early with a bouquet of flowers and a smile. He's shaved and even combed his hair. That is pressing on, my friends. The second lesson I think we have from this idea 
the athletic character is what we're talking about. If that's true in the Christian life, you must always strive for progress. Look again at our text in verse 12. Paul says, I do not, he says, not that I have already obtained this or that I am already perfect. And in verse 13, he repeats himself, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So there is, a, there is a mentality that the apostle adopts here. We'll call it progress, not perfection, to quote the 12 steps of AA. Paul the apostle knows that he hasn't arrived yet, so he's always striving for progress. In a race, it isn't over till it's over. There's always room for improvement. And if you're a runner, you look at your time and there's something called a PR. You know what this stands for? Your personal record. And you're, you may not win the race, but man, if you beat your PR, that's a good race. And so Paul is looking to beat his PR today from, compared to yesterday. In the Christian life, you can't slack off until you cross the finish line. That's the second implication. I think there's a third one. The Christian life requires that you go beyond your limits. The Christian life requires you to go beyond your limits. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards what lies ahead. Do you see what I did there? To strain forward means you take the space that you occupy normally and you expand it. So if you expand your chest, you're straining forward. If you reach out your hand to get that thing on the shelf at the top rung of the ladder, you strain forward. You're taking a risk. You're not supposed to stand on that top rung of the ladder. To strain forward means Paul spiritually is extending himself beyond his current capacities, beyond what he thinks he can do, beyond what he wants to do, but he's striving, he's pressing, he's straining. He's digging deep. Can I use that phrase? An athlete digs deep. If you're, I used to run the mile in high school, and man, when you hit that fourth lap, you got to dig deep. If you're running the quarter mile, it actually starts around the halfway point where you start building up. And when you hit that final 100-meter stretch, you need to find another gear. You need to dig deep. The fourth lesson here is in verse 14. If we're talking about the athletic character of, of, of the upward call of God, there is a prize at the end. Paul calls it the upward call of God in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the end. This prize, again, I like how the ESV Bible puts it, the prize is the fullness of blessings and rewards in the age to come, most especially being in fellowship with Jesus forever. That's the prize. Why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we on the top rung of the ladder risking life and limb to get that thing on the shelf? It's because Jesus is to be had. And it's worth every effort we can make. Well, look what he did for us. 
He, he scorned the cross. He despised its shame. And he did all that for you and me. And so we're called to follow him. So it has an athletic character. The second truth about the upward call is this. It requires, and it flows from this, it requires a lifelong pursuit. This is my second point. Let's think about its lifelong pursuit. In the text, we've already noted that the Apostle Paul didn't consider that he had already become perfect. That's in verse 12. He didn't even feel that he had made it his own, and that's verse 13. In fact, it's strange, but if you look carefully, the text tells us that it appears he's aiming to do the opposite. Whatever progress he's made, the text tells us he's actually trying to forget it. You see that? One thing I do, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind, straining, striving for what lies ahead. Sometimes people will say that when attempting to attain a goal that's a long ways off, it's helpful to mark your progress. Actually, Adam and I were talking about this when it comes to Bible reading. The idea is if you print out a piece of paper and you put an X on every day you do your Bible reading, you start getting a string of X's and you don't want to lose that streak. Well, Paul's doing the opposite. I think it's fine if you do that for your Bible reading. That's not my point. Paul's doing the opposite. He's saying, every day I read the Bible, I'm putting an X, I'm crumpling it up, and I'm throwing it away, and I'm starting, with, I'm starting fresh. Every single day, I'm living as if I've made no progress at all. I'm forgetting what is behind. But I think he's also forgetting the impressive resume that he used to have. I think the forgetting what is behind not only points to living every day as if it was a new start, it's also forgetting that whole business that used to preoccupy me, money, wealth, fame, status, prestige, you know, building your resume. This is part of the gospel math. By forgetting these things, he's... He's not saying that he can't actually remember that they happened. We're not talking about amnesia here. He, he tells his resume in Philippians 3 already. By forgetting, he means he's not dwelling on these things. They no longer control his way of thinking. So whether we forget past progress or forget past errors, in either case, he's saying this. I'm no expert. I need to start with the beginner's mind, have that childlike mindset every day of my life as I strain and strive for the goal. I'll never forget an illustration of this when I was in college. My pastor and his wife would have me and my friends, and eventually when Polly and I was mar were married, Polly and I would come over to his house. He, he was always hosting someone in, at his table for supper after church. And uh, my pastor's wife uh, Mary Lee, her father, uh, was actually part of the translation or interpretation of the Living Bible. His name is Dr. Ken Taylor. And when I found out who Dr. Taylor was and I was eating dinner with him, I was like, whoa, I got to think of a question to ask this ancient sage. And so I said, Dr. Taylor, do you still do devotions? I don't know. And he said, 
I need, he's 80 years old at this point, translated the entire Bible. He said, I need devotions today more than I've ever needed them in my life. And I was, you know, 20 years old, maybe 22, and I thought, that sounds wise. I'm not sure what it means, but it sounds wise, because you look to me like somebody who doesn't need to do any devotions ever again. But now that I'm in my 50s, I get it. I need the gospel and my devotions more today than I've ever needed them before. You see, Paul, in forgetting what is behind, like Dr. Taylor, is dwelling on God's present provision. I think of how in, in the wilderness, Israel was provided manna every day. Not for two days, except on the Sabbath. They were provided manna for two days, so they didn't have to gather on the Lord's day. And in that way, Paul forgets what is behind Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Philippians, says, Paul is longing for future grace. He's forgetting what is behind. Yesterday's grace doesn't cut it for us anymore. We need grace for today and hope for tomorrow. That's its lifelong pursuit. Finally, the upward call not only has an athletic character and is a lifelong pursuit, the third important truth about the upward call is that it has a divine source. And this is directly in the text. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. When it says the upward call of God, not to belabor the obvious, God is the one who's calling you. It's his call. It's God's call. The call comes from God from the heart of God, from the heart of Almighty God. He is calling you, the creator of the ends of the earth. This God is calling you. That's the upward call. It has a divine source because it is the call of God. It is a call from God. Now, you need to respond to the call. This is a crucial element. It can't be ignored. The involvement of your decision, your choice, you have a responsibility to hear and answer this call. And so sometimes pastors will distinguish between something we call a call in the ear, or as a parent will sometimes say, in one and out the other. So that's an outward call, and then a call in the heart. So some of you are hearing the sermon this morning and maybe not paying attention. Maybe you're upset, or maybe you don't want to follow Jesus. Maybe you're thinking there's some reason that you, you should be doing something else with your life, a different religion or a different priority. Remember the gospel math. It doesn't make sense to you. Then you're only being called outwardly. You hear my voice, but Christ isn't calling you. But if it rings in your heart, that's the call of God, and you need to respond. Look again at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, and here's the phrase, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So another important aspect of its divine source 
is that the upward call of God starts with God. God has to initiate. And he does this in Jesus Christ. So you say, how does God call me? I I haven't heard that call. I'm listening. I'm tuning in the radio. Well, the call comes in Christ, you see. You say, well, God, send me a sign. He did. Jesus died on the cross. He hung there with five bleeding wounds and a thorn which pierced his brow. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross. This is the sign that you need. And it's in the scriptures, faithfully recorded by the hands of eyewitnesses, testified over centuries. This is the sign that you are looking for. Jesus lived for you. He died for you. And most importantly in our text, he rose again from the dead. He was raised for you. That's what Paul means in verse 14. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. What's the next three words? In Christ Jesus. This is Paul's signature statement. En Christo. In Christ. All the blessings of God are in Christ. The call of God is in Christ. What did he do? He assumed the form, taking to his divine person a human nature, and assumes the form of a man through the birth in the blessed virgin's womb. He assumes our humanity, and that begins the call of God. Without the incarnation, there is no salvation. But from the incarnation, he then walked this earth And he fulfilled all righteousness, is what the voice from heaven said when Jesus was baptized. You see, this is how God's called us in Jesus Christ. That's what he did. Yet in a mystery, the sovereign and unbreakable call of God in Christ requires you to choose. You need to make a decision. You need to make this your own as Paul is here he says I do not consider that I've made it own but I'm striving for it I'm straining for it there's two aspects then to the divine call in your life like two sides of the same coin first of all God in Christ has taken the initiative with you some of you are old but none of you are 2,000 years old Jesus was sent 2,000 years ago for you God took the initiative. He took the first step. And now you need to embrace him by faith. That's the other side of the coin. So the upward call has an athletic character. It requires a lifelong pursuit, and it has a divine source. Three truths about the upward call of God in each one of our lives that needs to be learned and relearned. Now I want to conclude and make two applications for the vision of our church. The first application is this. I'm calling it corporate sanctification. I'll repeat that phrase because it's a bit complicated. Corporate sanctification. What does it mean? Corporate sanctification means this. In the Bible, what is true of the individual Christian may rightly be compared to and extended to the whole community of the church. Corporate sanctification. 
What I mean is this. If the Bible says that an individual Christian can be saved by analogy and by good inference, we can think of an entire church or an entire fellowship of believers as experiencing salvation on a corporate level. Likewise, if an individual Christian, and this may apply to some of you, if an individual Christian can backslide, you know what that means? One step forward, three steps back, one step forward, four steps back, and then you hit something. If an individual Christian can backslide, it's also true that a whole church can, in some parallel manner, backslide and lose its way. To illustrate this point, I want to remind you that Jesus actually wrote letters to churches. Jesus himself. Now, I think Jesus is speaking to us in the letter to the Philippians, but it was written by Paul. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, wrote seven letters to seven churches in the ancient world. And in these letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, several of them, I think at least four or five, are backslidden churches. Churches that have lost their way. At one point he says, you're neither hot nor cold, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's a serious accusation to be leveled against a congregation. So in these letters, Jesus in Revelation is speaking to churches about their strengths and weaknesses, and we find whole churches are giving qualities that we normally think of as belonging to individual believers. And so in this morning's message, my point is this. Just as you as an individual have an upward call, we as a church have an upward call of God. Just as you as an individual need to pursue athletically and and enthusiastically and in a determined way to press forward and not shrink back, to not think that you've arrived, to forget what lies behind and to move on towards what lies ahead. That's true of you as individuals. It's true of Mercy Hill as a church. Corporate sanctification, and this is the money quote, is the process by which not just one person, but a whole group of people covenanted together as a a fellowship of believers progressively grows by the power of the Holy Spirit in the likeness of Christ. That's it corporate sanctification. When this happens, when a whole group of believers in a church is faithfully walking down the pathway of purification and godliness, of humility and love, in service, listening and caring and boldly proclaiming, when that happens at a corporate level, oh boy, towns are changed. Streets can't remain the same. Families are transformed, and the people who are skeptical take notice. That's corporate sanctification. And that's my first application. My second application of this morning's message for our vision as a church is a question. What does maturity and growth look like for us as a congregation. If we're called, not just individually, but as a church family, to press forward to what lies ahead, if that's our calling, what does pressing forward look like? 
for, for us as collectively, as a community. When it comes to vision, we're talking about what would our church look like in, say, five, seven, ten years, assuming that we're staying true to the Scriptures and to our mission. And I've thought about this quite a bit. I've prayed about it as well. My answer to the question is this phrase, and I'm borrowing this phrase, by the way, from a pastor that I was speaking to on Friday about my sermon. So he gave me this phrase, Pastor Ozzy. My answer to the question, what is God calling us to do? Get out of the four walls. That's what he's calling us to do. Get out of the four walls. Now, when I say get out of the four walls, I'm talking about the church house, the, the facility, and I mean physically, actually getting out of the four walls, but I, I mean also figuratively as well. But I want to make a caveat. To get into this church house, to get into these four walls, I can't count the number, the thousands of hours, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it has taken to get us into these four walls. Pastor, are you saying all that was for naught, that we're going to just blow it up and sort of meet in the park? No, thank you. Been there, done that. I am so thankful to God for these four walls and for the sacrificial service that countless nameless, faceless people have put in. And many of you have faces. Many of you have have. Sweat, blood, sweat, and tears. Have you seen our, our new parlor or former library or whatever that room is over there? That's the sacrifice of one person and, and, and a whole board of deacons supporting him. So no, I am not forgetting that. But Paul tells us to forget what lies behind Now, that's something to think about. All of the effort for 15 years since my wife and I moved here in 2009 and I was called as pastor literally 15 years ago yesterday, living in New Jersey to pastor a church that had no members, no address, in a state I'd never lived in, and I had no money to do it. But other than that, it was a great idea, Right? So 15 years, in some ways, was, was aimed to this moment where we have not an air conditioning building, but the fans work pretty good. I mean, I love the church house. I love it. And now, for the next 15 years, he wants us to get out of these four walls. That's what I think God wants. Just because we're overjoyed with God's provision for our church does not mean we stop here, friends. Beloved in the Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ, we may be thankful, but we are not content until we cross the finish line. We will not stop until we experience the full completion of the Spirit's renovating project in this church. And by renovation, I mean lives changed, people transformed, marriages healed, parents and children reconciled. That's what I mean. Like Paul, we have a destination and a mission beyond our conversion, in our case as a church, beyond finding a permanent home. 
I think this means that we spent the first 15 years of our existence trying to get into this building, so we need to spend the next 15 years trying to get out. Think about that. What does the getting out look like to me? I'm going to sketch a picture for you. Four things. Sharing the love of Jesus, not just from the pulpit, but from the sidewalk or the boardwalk or on the World Wide Web walk with social media and other video and media outlets that are there. Getting the word out is what we call that in our budget, actually. Getting the word out. Two, sharing the love of Jesus, not just with words, but with actions and with our deeds, especially with people who are skeptical of the church or of Christians. Those people, and maybe this is you, you need to see it before you believe it. You're from Missouri. Show me state. And so many people who aren't yet Christians are there because they want to be shown that it makes a difference in your life, which means you need to change your schedule. You need to make room for some of those people in your day-to-day and not pack your schedule to the gills so that the only space you have in your life is for the, the immediate nuclear family that lives under your house or your immediate schedule. Carving out pockets of time in your schedule and money so that others can, can find shade under the tree that you are enjoying so very much. I'd love to see us partner with other churches who have clothing closets, food pantries, homeless ministries, youth outreach programs, sports camps, art camps, ESL training, tutoring agencies, rent relief program, addiction and recovery ministry, and job training program. Now the mission of the church is to preach the gospel. These things are not directly preaching the gospel. But unless we're involved in them, they're never going to hear the gospel. And guess what? The people that tend to do these things in our day and age are not Christians. They are secular government workers. And that's not true across the board, but we need to make a difference here. Three, raising up and sending out young men into the harvest fields as, as pastors and church planters. Here I envision in the next 10, 15 years, Mercy Hill planting one, two, three churches. Some of you drive from a distance, so let's plant a church in Swedesboro or West Berlin. <laughs> I see that hand. I'm also thrilled and want to publicly thank and praise Will and Sarah Bausch for hearing and answering the call of God, the upward call of God in their lives. I mean, Will's practically an old man. And he has answered the upward call of God. And he is thinking of a career change. I can't believe it. I, I mean, you know, this, this is the thing, this is biblical in proportions. 
We heard yesterday a testimony of a young man named Nathaniel who was a top student in computer science at Rowan University. He heard the upward call of God beginning with his parents whispering in his ear, maybe God may be calling you to do something else. He was like, no. And it worked on him and the spirit worked on him. And Nathaniel laid down his top shelf skills. We're talking job offers, computer science, Anybody, anybody heard about big tech? Like, I mean, this is, not, this is not an inexpensive decision he's made to become a pastor. That is exciting. We have some men in our church that are contemplating pastoral ministry as well, including, I will mention, Brandon Frateroli, who has started Westminster Seminary as we speak. He is in his studies in Glenside, Pennsylvania, and our church is supporting him. I couldn't be more proud, and this is part of our vision of the church. I want to see Rowan RUF grow to 100 students in the next 10 years with a full staff to support all of those needs. Finally, in light of the central nature of the Christian family, the family, the Christian family I know marriage is on the decline. I know child rearing is on the decline. I don't care. The Christian family is God's number one program for society and this world. Bar none, full stop, drop the mic, we're done. It's about the Christian family. And in support of that Christian family, this church in the next 15 years has to get involved in Christian education. We have to. Whether that means starting a school, which Polly and I would like to help start a school. Encouraging homeschool co-ops, That's a low-cost, high-value alternative that works for a lot of parents. Or if you continue to send your kids or are in the government schools, finding ways to strategically address the full frontal attack by the enemy himself that is going on in our public schools right now. Now, I have no idea how we're going to accomplish these things, but that's not what I get paid for. I think that's what Jesus wants with our church, and now you are to do it. So take these ideas, take these four things, pray about it, talk about it, and please don't ask for permission. Are you not a blood-bought son or daughter of the king? Have you not been given the Holy Spirit? Are all the promises of God yes and amen for the preacher only, or are they for every believer in Christ? First, Second John says, You have no need for anyone to teach you, which doesn't mean teaching is unimportant. It means that you are fully equipped in the gospel to carry out the call of God in your lives. So do it. And this church exists to help you to do that. My job is to live a godly life. May God help me to love my wife, stay out of jail, and preach the gospel boldly. That's my job. Your job is to do the work of the ministry. And so you need to do your part. Pursue the upward call of God, not just individually. I think many of you do that well. Collectively, we need to do a better job at this. As families, husbands and wives together, small groups together, it's going to take everyone because sanctification is corporate and every single person matters. All hands on deck. Are you with me? 
On your mark, get set, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just an exciting exploration of the scriptures this morning in connection with our vision as a church. And you have put some ideas out there for us to chew on, but hopefully not to stop there, not just to meditate or think about it. Hopefully you're stirring in people's hearts, the people of Mercy Hill, some action plans so that as the word has been preached, we can bear fruit from the preached word by our lives. In this we show that we are his disciples, that we bear much fruit in keeping his commands. So God, help us in these things. We pray it through your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.